Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today's episode is brought to you by RSM US, a provider of audit, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm joined today by Kevin Depew, RSM's Deputy Chief Economist and leader of the firm's National Industry Eminence Program. Kevin is a regular guest on the podcast. He joins me each quarter to talk about recent economic developments and how they're affecting middle market companies. Kevin, it's great to have you back. Thanks, Katie. So good to be here. So let's start by talking about the growth forecast for 2021. There's been a lot of positive news around the vaccine these last few weeks, and now we have a a clear picture of who will occupy the White House, something we didn't know the last time that you and I spoke So based on what we know today, what kind of GDP growth is RSM expecting to see next year? So we're forecasting pretty strong growth next year, near 4%, uh, with some possibility of upside risk. Of course, everything is so uh, dependent on the course of the virus. It's dependent on the efficacy of the vaccines that are available, how quickly we can distribute those. Uh, But one thing 2020 has taught us is that uh, we are conditioned now to expect the worst. And so the reason we say there is some possibility of upside risk is that if any one of those things, distribution of the vaccine, efficacy, uh, the suppression of the virus, if any one of those things go a little bit better than expected, then I think that our 4% growth uh, forecast for 2021 uh, will probably be a little bit lower than, than what is the actuality. And in RSM's latest Real Economy report, you outlined two major catalysts for economic growth in 2021. Household spending was one and, and fiscal aid was the other. So can you talk about each of those and, and why they're sources of optimism? Absolutely. And to, to go back to your first question, uh, all of this is not only dependent on the vaccine, it's dependent on fiscal aid or fiscal stimulus uh, taking place. So here we are uh, late uh, near the end of, of 2020, uh, there still is not clarity around whether that stimulus is going to happen. And so we're you know, just acknowledging that we're dependent on that. Right now, the economy is only functioning at about 80%. So in a $20 trillion economy, that means that uh, at 80% capacity, there's about $4 trillion in impaired potential activity that is out there. So our forecast is for 3.5% household spending in 2021, possibly 5% uh, at a sustainable pace because of that $4 trillion that's sitting there if the vaccine or the efficacy goes a little bit better than expected. Now, most of this is driven by those top two quintiles of income earners. Their spending is uh, almost, it's 9.5% below where it was in 2019. At the same time, those households have a very high 14.1% savings rate. So what that means is that with fewer places in 2020 to be able to spend money, those top income earners have held on to that uh, money and it's available to be deployed into the economy. And what I would note is that if you think about why we have upside risk to economic growth uh, next year, it's related to the condition of households as we entered this uh, pandemic-driven recession versus go back to, say, the Great Recession. Households at that point, even among the top two quintiles of income earners, were heavily leveraged to housing. Their savings rate for more than a decade had been very low. So in net, many households had been drawing down savings to consume. Here we have the flip side of the coin where since the Great Recession ended, households have done 
a pretty good job in aggregate of repairing their balance sheets, getting to a point where we're no longer drawing down savings to consume. And so that opens up the potential for a much hotter economy in 2021. Again, assuming that we get fiscal stimulus and those households, 10 million plus people out of work right now directly as a result of the pandemic, if they get assistance. And so really that's what we're, we're looking for and why we're a little bit optimistic about consumption next year. And we've been talking about the broader economy, but I'm interested to know if if expectations in the middle market are aligned with that macro outlook. Right. Our survey data, the middle market business index data shows that sentiment in the market or in the middle market specifically is rock solid. So uh, there are a couple of challenging things here that we have to hold simultaneously. And it's, it seems on the surface contradictory. So on the one hand, we're talking about uh, 4% GDP growth with potential upside in 2021. On the other hand, we're talking about 10 million people out of work as a result of the pandemic. So what's going on here? Well, in our view, this is really uh, the illumination of what has become a K-shaped economy, which has been in process for much of the past 20 years. And so even when you look within the middle market, sentiment remains solid, but it's dependent upon where your business is located on that K. So we talked about, for example, consumption, those top two quintiles of income earners, very strong balance sheets. Well, it just so happens that they account for about 60% of overall consumption. Now, uh, when you think about the unemployment rate, 6.7%, 10 million plus people out of work, how do you hold that strong consumption with uh, simultaneously acknowledging that we have labor market issues? Uh, well, that's that K-shaped economy. You have those businesses and industries that throughout the pandemic have, in some cases, if you're thinking about technology and digital innovation, uh, they have seen uh, increases in business throughout the pandemic and have been largely shielded from some of the demand suppression that the pandemic has, has induced. Uh, then you have all those consumer-facing industries on that lower K-shaped path, uh, hardest hit uh, in terms of employment, hardest hit in terms of demand. And so really balancing those two things shows that, yes, we can have an economy that's growing at 4%, but it's still leaving behind a significant part of the population. You touched on this, but you know the the pandemic's impact has obviously varied in severity by industry. Are there sectors that you expect to really lag in their return to normalcy too, even after we have a vaccine and, and it's distributed? Certainly, uh, travel, hospitality, all of the full scale entertainment. So if you think about sporting events, uh, you know from basically from high school to Division one college up through professional sports. Uh, all of the theaters that uh, remain suppressed as a result of, of business curtailment activities, uh, even restaurants, all of these low margin consumer facing businesses at risk, uh, showing these, the, the really illustrating these pockets of hidden insolvency around the, the economy. Those are the ones that uh, have suffered the most during the pandemic. Uh, they're also, in many cases, the ones that are easiest for us to substitute for at the household level. So, uh, okay, well, we can't go out to movies, but we can subscribe to HBO Max or, or Netflix. Uh, you know, we can't travel as much as we wanted to, but we can invite services uh, into our homes, whether it's other types of gaming or, or, or all those things that, that are, are substitutable for those in-person entertainment and, and travel and hospitality issues. So that's, those are the industries that, that will be slowest to recover. We're not in the camp that, that believes that uh, no one is ever going to go to a movie theater again or no one's ever going to go to a sporting event or all restaurants are going to go out of business. There's no question uh, a severe downturn 
impacting restaurants, impacting those entertainment venues. Uh, but we think that there's going to be a lot of pent up demand. We want to be in person with other people. We want to see other people. We're tired of doing the, the, the video conferencing. We're tired of working from home. Uh, and we've also seen some of the limits of productivity that, you know, sure, there are some things that are very amenable, some businesses very amenable to work from home, but there are others that uh, the collaboration involved, the interaction with, uh, with team members at a cross-disciplinary level that you just can't substitute for that uh, with telework. And despite the fact that entire industries and, and individual businesses are still struggling, we saw the Treasury Department move to end some of its liquidity and lending programs. Do you expect there to be negative consequences of that move for middle market companies? You know, the Fed would prefer the full menu of emergency facilities have remained in place until the pandemic subsides. We would agree with that. Uh, the middle market especially is at risk from not replenishing the Paycheck Protection Program, not extending the Main Street Lending Program. I understand that the MSLP, uh, the uptake was not what policymakers had hoped for. Having said that, I think that there were adjustments that could have been made to MSLP, something to incentivize lending that would have been beneficial for the middle market. Now, uh, again, the middle market has a lot of interest from private lenders, so capital is available, but it really depends on which, where you are situated in the middle market on that K-shaped economy path. If you're on that upper K-shaped path where you have clear solvency, uh, clear um, uh, positive business expectations, that's one thing. You probably have no trouble accessing capital uh, at a reasonable rate. If you're on the lower K-path, so you're in those consumer-facing industries, the ones uh, that have been most impacted by, uh, by the pandemic, and the industries that are most in need of capital, those are the ones that are going to suffer the most. And so my, my colleague, Joe Busuelas, uh, in a New York Times article recently characterized this as being the 2021 little landmines throughout the economy. So as we go through 2021, what will start to be uh, revealed will be those pockets of insolvency uh, that were essentially masked by some of the, the fiscal aid that, that policymakers approved early on in the pandemic. Uh, those are going to be revealed, and it's not going to be a smooth, oh, great, 4% GDP growth, things are all back to normal type of economy. Instead, it's going to be one where I think at some point, people will be a little bit puzzled about how the data in the macro sense uh, seems to be good, while their experience at the state and local level in their communities is one where they say, oh my gosh, all these businesses are still uh, struggling. What's really happening here? So I think there's going to be a confusing period in 2021, uh, largely rooted in that K-shaped economy. And is that is that K-shaped economy then exacerbated if only if private lenders only want to lend to the strongest companies that you just sort of see a, a knock-on effect? Absolutely. It, it, it removes a layer of demand and it makes the longer term recovery from uh, the pandemic induced recession much more challenging. Uh, it makes it probably more extended. I, I think because it, when you look at the difference between what the recovery period was post Great Recession and what we anticipate for this one going forward, that uh, in the Great Recession, most of the responsibility and the efficacy of the tools available to be able to bring growth back to uh, potential GDP uh, resided in uh, the central bank. And that was true not only in the United States, but it was true globally. And this one going forward, most of the responsibility resides uh, with fiscal policymakers. 
And so you can start to see the, you know, given where we are in terms of a very polarized uh, environment of Washington, D.C., why that remains the chief risk. It's really going to be at the policy choice level if we decide and, and fail to act on fiscal stimulus, that we have a much uh, longer period of recovery from this recession than we need have. And so to me, that is the chief risk going forward. Let's talk about jobs. The The most recent jobs report was weaker than expected. You referenced the, the 10 million people out of work figure. And that report also showed that fewer unemployed people are looking for work. And uh, I believe in your field that is read as a, a very bad sign. So I'm curious to hear what you make of that drop in the labor force participation rate and whether this is something we should be worried about for the recovery. Sure. So uh, in total, the, the latest jobs report covering November showed that the labor force participation rate had declined to 61.5%. Uh, just for context, before the pandemic, uh, that labor force participation rate was 63.4%. So most concerning about uh, this is the impact on prime age working women. Uh, and prime age, we mean in that 25 to 54 demographic. Those working women have been disproportionately affected by the job losses in the pandemic. Uh, and the reason is that uh, in many cases, they are primary caregivers for children. Children have been able to go to school or there have been income uh, uh, hits that have made it more difficult for those working women to be able to afford childcare. So they have no choice. They have to make that decision between, well, am I going to spend my time away from my child working uh, for an extra $20 a week? Or am I just going to say, okay, well, I'll leave that $20 on the table and I'll take care of my, my children because they can't go to school. So those are the types of decisions that those households face. Now, the risk from an economic standpoint is that acts as a long-term drag on economic growth. It slows the full recovery, and it again goes to removing that layer of demand and reinforces that K-shaped economy that we find ourselves in. The Real Economy report that I mentioned earlier, it, it made the point that conditions are ripe for a, a multi-trillion dollar, multi-decade infrastructure project. I think it's hard to imagine right now Congress passing anything major. So I wonder if you think that this is something that we'll see greenlit in the near future or to be more cynical in, in our lifetimes. <laughs> I've been waiting. It feels like I've been waiting in my lifetime for infrastructure. <laughs> uh, and it was an ongoing joke over the past four years that uh, this week is infrastructure week. So. Yeah. And given the composition of the current Congress, I, you know, I, I am somewhat optimistic that we make progress toward at least a limited uh, infrastructure investment in the first two years. Depending on what happens uh, within the next two years, a future Congress, depending on the composition, that potentially we have the possibility of a much broader infrastructure uh, package. Going back to 2015, we estimated that there was a, and we published this in the real economy, uh, more than $3 trillion infrastructure deficit in the United States. And so that means that we would have to spend $3 trillion just to bring our infrastructure up to what would be considered the reasonable standards that a developed economy would have. And so we break this down into your big eye, which are the things like your, your big eye infrastructure, roads, bridges, ports, tunnels your little eye in infrastructure, expanding digital broadband access, uh, rolling out 5G uh, nationwide. 
And then the E component of that is the integration of those into smart renewable resource use. So if you're thinking about green energy, transitioning away from carbon uh, fuels, and the dramatic reimagining of education for the jobs of the future, even retraining those who have been left behind by the loss of, of employment in the pandemic. So there is a significant headwind we face just in terms of growing the economy longer term. Many people are looking, at least many people in Congress, it appears, are looking at infrastructure as a spend. Uh, infrastructure is an investment and it, it delivers a return. And so uh, what I most fear is that given the fiscal state of the United States economy, there is going to be a pressure uh, to avoid investment because it looks like a spend. And it shows in the near term an expanding uh, deficit financed uh, type of infrastructure package, which there's not a lot of appetite for. And I think that that's true for both parties. So I don't know, I, I would like to be optimistic that we could find or that we move toward a more collaborative environment in Washington, D.C., particularly as baby boomers begin to age out of policymaking roles and millennials and Gen Z begin to age further into policymaking leadership roles, that we move toward a more collaborative environment overall. Survey after survey, doesn't matter where you're looking, shows that there are dramatic differences in uh, collaboration, dramatic differences in attitudes toward uh, taxation fairness uh, that are held by Gen Z millennials as compared with, with, with baby boomers. So I think that there is longer term some optimism around this infrastructure investment, but it's going to take uh, some time and a lot of pain and a lot of tears to be able to get there. Recently, President-elect Joe Biden has been announcing his nominations and appointments for his cabinet and advisors. Do the names that he's put forward hint at the economic policies we should expect from his administration over the course of his term? Well, you know, uh, pre-pandemic, uh, the the phrase status quo Joe was largely viewed as Now, I think it's a badge of honor. So, uh, you know, first of all, Janet Yellen, uh, I think is a terrific choice. All of these are stabilizing appointments even when you look at his closest economic advisors. And I think that this uh, gets to your question in, in terms of what we can look forward to longer term. Uh, Jared Bernstein, Heather Boucher, both favor tools to level the playing field between labor and capital. If you look at virtually any data set, wage growth data for the 99%, excluding the 1% who have seen uh, their wealth uh, skyrocket throughout the pandemic and for most of the past 40 years, if you look at corporate profits, if you look at minimum wage at the federal level as a percentage of average hourly earnings, we are exiting a 40 year period where capital is one. It's one at the expense of labor time and time again for 40 years. That's been the theme of the past 40 years, capital ascendancy, labor at, at the mercy of capital. So what this means longer term is that it's likely to see that, that pendulum swing the other way where it's labor's turn to start to win for a little while. Now, I know that at the corporate level, if we're looking, uh, if we're listening to this, then that may seem like unwelcome news, but the reality is the K-shaped economy cannot persist, and that's going to entail some dramatic changes in uh, policy favoring labor over capital. If we are in a situation where people on that lower K-shaped path 
perceive no ability to be able to move to the uppercase shape path. You cannot have a stable society and you cannot have uh, longer term economic growth at our potential. Do we see a, a revival of labor unions as part of that? Well, I think you're already starting to see that if you look at uh, Amazon, for example, if you start to look around some of the major employers, uh, particularly on the tech side, there's starting to be an increasing recognition that labor uh, deserves some additional protections and some layers of protection tied to technology and the adoption and growth of technology that may not have been conceivable or needed before. So you think about uh, the potential for employers and to become more invasive in what your work from home situation looks like. So monitoring keystrokes, uh, seeing just how productive you really are, right? So uh, there is going to be some increasing uh, calls for uh, regulation around that. And there's no two ways around it. That's that's where we're headed. Mm -hmm. And going back to the, the cabinet question real quick, you know, I, I'm thinking about how, if I remember correctly, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, Joe Biden himself was very active in, in going and meeting with Congress and pushing forward that bill. Is there anyone within um, his slate of, of nominees or appointments that he wants to make that you could see playing a similar role potentially for pushing forward infrastructure? Well, there are, and I, and I think that that's a great question. It will remain to be seen uh, who's really uh, going to be pushing uh, the infrastructure uh, packages and who's going to be uh, truly involved in that at the cabinet level. Uh, one of the differences that we will see uh, over the next four years is that you start to have fully staffed uh, White House and executive branch that is able to start to do these things. Uh, the reality is that in the Trump administration, there uh, the policy resided in essentially a handful of people. Now that's going to be uh, much more distributed among uh, a much larger working group and in the executive branch. And we'll see, uh, I think people may be at, uh, surprised at how effective having a fully staffed executive branch goes toward pushing policy uh, after four years where we've been really operating at a much more, at a much lower pace. And so looking out ahead a year or two, are there any other major policy or, or regulatory changes that you expect to be implemented that could have an impact on the, the middle market business community? Well, the focus one for the administration is going to be the pandemic. And so uh, that's been the stated goal uh, from day one uh, from uh, President-elect Biden's administration. Uh, we still have uh, a dark winter ahead of us, as as, uh, as Dr. Fauci has, has indicated. Uh, the next six months are going to be critical. And, and before we start to really talk about longer term policy changes, we've got to get through this pandemic. And so I think that while that may be frustrating for for uh, middle market businesses that are looking forward to infrastructure, which will have a tremendous benefit for the middle market, uh, that we have some steps and some hurdles to get through first. And then so much of that's dependent on the, on the composition of Congress. Uh, if we have, uh, you know, if we continue to have the divided Congress where policy impasse uh, is really the rule versus the exception, then uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. It probably won't be a very optimistic for major policy or major changes. Uh, and I think more likely is that you see the next two years uh, the Biden administration trying to build support that manifests in additional Senate and potential House wins uh, at the midterm point. And at that, 
uh, once we get to that stage, if they are successful in doing that, then you will see a ramp up in policy. If they are unsuccessful in doing that, or if the polarization persists, then I think the, that we should expect uh, a lot of push and pull, a lot of false starts, a lot of, uh, just a, a lot of uh, conflict around fiscal cliffs, uh, about spending, the, you know, the same things that we're seeing now. And, and so we'll be at the same point four years from now where we're looking at, well, when are we going to do infrastructure? When are we going to do the things that make us competitive longer term in the global economy? And right now we're falling uh, behind in those areas. Okay, we'll leave it there for today. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.